Hey, it's Imogen from SquarePeg. At SquarePeg, we invest in companies who, by and large, are right at the beginning of their journey. In some cases, they haven't built a website or generated any significant revenue. And so for the most part, we're investing on potential. Now, it's not like we're investing without a sense of what's to come. We've met the founders, heard their stories, learned about their culture and the philosophy of building teams, and we've deduced that there is something pretty special about them. But there are always things we just can't know about the future of any company. Like, we don't know how a particular competitor will behave or how quickly the company can find product market fit or if something totally existential will happen. COVID-19 is a good example. It was just so off everyone's radar, but it has dominated our lives for the last eight months. But what we can be certain for most companies is that there will be something. There will be a big unknown, something unexpected that just lands in their path. And our guest today talks beautifully candidly about how to handle that journey when things aren't 100% linear. This is a gift because in truth, the most startup stories are told as if the path is hard, but ultimately gilded. On the way up, it looks a lot messier. Chris Hexton is the founder and CEO at Vero, and Vero is one of the most powerful messaging platforms in the world. And their story is a cracker. We invested in 2017, and I think Chris is one of the most thoughtfully reflective founders I know. He also has a really strong philosophy around how to build remote teams that work, which we get into towards the end of the conversation. And this is applicable for basically all teams right now as we manage through this pandemic. Meet Chris. I'm lucky to have a great family. So I've got two immediate siblings and two half siblings and then mum and dad. So there's, what's that, seven of us in total. Uh, So it's a pretty big family. Uh, We didn't all live together growing up. I lived with my mum and dad and my two immediate siblings, but we're all really lucky to get along. And I think, yeah, still feel super lucky that, you know, mum in particular, dad as well. And then all of my siblings have made a really big effort to keep that friendship going, even as we get older and all become adults. I've got 19 or 20 cousins or something, and we all, you know, grew up seeing each other. So that's uh, certainly, you know, strong, strong in my memories. And Chris doesn't just recall strong memories, but strong values as well. Values that come back into play later when he talks about starting Vero. Mum and dad were super hard workers and they were fortunate also to be rewarded along the way for their hard work. It's not as if they were slogging away and got nothing back from it. So I think that definitely taught me the value of hard work and then was also inspiring in that if you work hard, you know, this sense that you can actually achieve things and move forward. And and I think that's a, that that was inspiring to me and and a great thing. I also think, you know, my parents are, they're confident people and they have, you know, opinions on things, but they're also super open-minded. And that's something I really value and have tried to learn from myself. I think they're, they're, they're curious and maybe there's a great sense of humility in that. Yeah. That, you know, what's the, what's the quote, you know, strong opinions loosely held or something like that. And so that's a great thing to have seen growing up as well. Speaking to Chris, it's pretty clear that he embodies a lot of these lessons from a young age. He worked hard at school, describes his teachers as passionate, as inspiring, and seems to have had an aspirational mindset from the get-go. I certainly think even when I was in high school, I could picture my life today, maybe not 10x where I am, but, you know, dad, dad worked for a company and the founders of that had become friends of him in essence. And obviously they were his bosses as well. So a lot of his work life and work stories, you know, came back to them and, and stories about what they were up to. And so I had grown up with this uh, image of entrepreneurship 
in them. And also my dad to a sense, I mean, he moved from England by himself to the other side of the world and um, had sort of found his own way and you know, really grown a lot inside this company. So the word entrepreneur is, uh, you know, I remember asking my dad to define what it meant when I was, you know, I don't know how old, but very young. And uh, he couldn't, if, I don't think he did a good job of it, but he was sort of like, well, it's hard to say. It's not like a doctor where there's a checklist. It's, you know, they've gone and done something, created something or whatever. So I think I was, I was at least aware of it as a concept. I didn't know what the path looked like to get there. And, uh, and maybe that's why I fell into to doing what I did at university. I mean, uh, university wasn't, uh, yeah, it wasn't a su- surprise for me to go. Yeah, both my parents did tertiary education, but I don't think either of them went to university per se as it is today. Uh, and yet, yeah, they always pushed all myself and all my siblings, you know, down the path of at least having a shot at getting in and doing the course that we wanted. If we did, fantastic. And also if we didn't, fantastic. And yeah, I ended up studying business at UTS in Sydney. And yeah, it was kind of a, it was kind of a, a bit of a blur looking back because I also, I started working at PwC as soon as I finished high school. So I was in fact working for the first two years of university out of four or three and a half. I was working every day, five days a week, nine to five, and then doing university at night. So my university, at least for the first part, was you know, more work oriented, uh, not in a bad way than, than university oriented. I think this decision gives you an insight into the level of maturity that Chris had, even as an 18-year-old. He extended his degree by another year in order to gain professional experience and an income during his studies in accounting and business. And this was his first real exposure to how companies can be run. And for the most part, he loved it. It was part of their cadetship program. And as a lot of corporates do, they hire a lot of young people at the same time. So it's actually a fun environment to start somewhere in and then you're not alone you're figuring things out because there are, in my case, I think there was probably maybe even 30, but certainly 20, 25 uh, people starting at the same time, the same age. So none of us had any idea. And so that helped a lot because then you've got an instant support network, but also, you know, in order to have that many people start, the company's obviously thought about the onboarding uh, in order to make it at least somewhat successful. So, that, you know, I think they did a really good job at making everyone feel welcome and educating everyone, at least on that, the basic sort of PwC way of doing things and the, the PwC attitudes. Chris says another thing he admired about his cadetship was the kind of projects he was given to work on, even at such a young age. I do think they give a lot of work autonomy to the new hires. And in my opinion, they really, certainly in the last year of that cadetship, so at that point you're like 19, maybe 20, that you're essentially doing the same job you will do when you graduate. So by that point, you've you've kind of learned the ropes. And, and And I think that is a cool thing. In my case, I was in assurance, which is the section of PwC that does audits. So to meet compliance for other big corporates. And I worked in the IT subdivision of that. One of the things I found while talking to Chris is just how considered and well thought out his reasoning is. He can really see the pros and cons and how to run a business and reflect on how he feels about his time at PwC. Later, when you hear about how Chris runs Vero, you can feel the influence of this thought process in his own business. I definitely think PwC does a good job at they have a strong culture. And I think there's a real sense of pride's probably the right word for those who, who work there and work there throughout their career. It's kind of like team PwC and there's a real sense of that. And uh, you know, you're, either, you're either in the team or you're out of it, I suppose. I think that is a good thing and it, and it can certainly build a lot of morale and a lot of momentum and, um, and get people working really well together. You know, obviously the downside of that can be, and this would be true of any workplace, I suppose, if, if, if you don't resonate with that culture, then it's not the place for you. But I think that that is life. 
I also think they, you know, they do have really strong processes internally, or certainly when I was there, I felt they did. Uh, and sometimes, you know, there's a downside to that as well, but they've been doing audit for decades, maybe longer, I, I'm not quite sure. And so there, you know, there were really strong protocols on how to go about an audit and internal frameworks for how to approach it. And they educated you on all of that. So I think they got an awful lot of work done, um, in my opinion, you know, really. And, uh, and that probably comes down to having those really strict processes. So Chris learned from his time at PwC and then decided it was time to move on. But to learn why, we need to know his co-founder, James. James, my co-founder and I, you know, we've known each other since we were six and we sort of maybe a bit older than that, seven or eight. And we, we sort of lost touch here and there. But when we were in touch, um, it, it always came back to wanting to hack on something together or, or create something together. So we coded our first website together when we were 12, for example. And so the idea of creating little things for fun was certainly something that, that I did. I wouldn't go so far as to say in my teens, I was trying to sell things, uh, but certainly trying to be creative and, and explore things and, and had a passion for technology. That was the other thing that bonded James and I whenever we crossed paths. In case you were wondering, 12-year-old Chris and James got their start in coding by building websites about Pokemon. I actually think we coded several. Uh, mostly we were trying to learn how to code HTML. So it wasn't fancier, but certainly one that stands out was we, you know, we built a Pokemon website because we were 11 and 12. <laughs> so I don't, I don't think it did a great deal. I just uh, had a lot of information. Consider it sort of a, a dictionary for Pokemon. I think, you know, in terms of leaving PwC, I, I realized it wasn't the place where I wanted to spend my full career and become a partner there. And I also realized that knowing that, you know, it didn't really make sense to stay for eight years and then leave because the path kind of looked the same. So may as well leave now. Uh, and James was sort of of the same mind in his own job. And uh, and so we, we sort of said, well, let's, yeah, let's leave and uh, and figure it out. And we always had crazy ideas um, that we might start a company. But the, the first thing we ended up doing was coding things for other people. So, you know, classic software development agency, basically. And that was the first thing we fell into. And we did that for, I think, almost two years before we applied to Startmate. And during those two years building their own business, Chris and James learned a lot. I mean, for me, I learned to code a lot better. So that was certainly valuable. You know, James did a software engineering degree, so he was the expert and the one teaching me. We both learned a lot about how to you know, find clients and run those projects. And that was super hard. You know, we, were su- we were super lucky. Uh, we met a couple of people that were in the Startmate mentor network. We didn't know that. I don't think Startmate really existed at that time, but they sort of introduced us to people who, who they heard needed work done. And that's how it you know, started. And then obviously you have word of mouth and go from there. But for the most part, it was just the two of us and sometimes one or two others uh, who helped us on those projects. And so, yeah, we certainly learned about, you know, in essence, talking to people you haven't met before and trying to win work from them, making sure you're delivering the project and putting together a process to actually do that. All those sorts of things were, were things I'd never done before. And particularly that sales part, I'd never done that before either. So that was probably the main learning for me. This learning curve was a big one. They worked, learned, made connections, and eventually applied for a program called Startmate. 
For overseas listeners, Startmate is the Australian equivalent of Y Combinator. It's a brilliant program. And Chris and James got accepted into the Startmate program with another of our portfolio companies, UpGuard. And it was here that they began to shift their mindset from how to build a service business to how to build a product business. And we got into Startmate because we had to apply with something to get into Startmate, so some product. And we had built a very, very, very lightweight invoicing platform when we were you know, running our dev shop. And really we had built that so that I could practice more coding, but uh, Starmate was therefore a super, super interesting learning experience. We probably had half the mentors who thought that this fledgling product we had could in fact be a real business and a big one. And so the, the idea was, well, there's a huge market here. Everyone needs to do basic bookkeeping. And so if you can find an angle that truly does differentiate you, well, then you'll be in a really good spot. And then you had the other half of the mentors who were saying, well, you're just, you're not going to find that. And also you haven't really built that much. So it's a crazy idea. You should work on something else. And, uh, and so yeah, it was a lot of mentor whiplash as they call it. But aside from that, Starmate was great just for the process of learning how to go about product market fit or finding product market fit. And so I, I think that taught us a lot. You know, again, it really took that sales experience we'd had from the dev shop and dialed it up to 11 and saying, well, you've got to go and find customers for this thing. I mean, that was the only thing that mattered and is the only thing that matters. And if you can't, well, why, you know, ask them why not and then learn from that and then iterate. So we tried sort of several iterations on that product, but, but got nowhere. And so it was by the end of Startmate, it was very clear that we weren't going to progress down that road. And that's, that's really where Vero was born from there. It's pretty common for our founders to have had a couple of attempts at building something before settling on the thing. And Chris and James were no different. And though they were, in Chris's words, a little bummed at not being so successful at Startmate, they found themselves in the US at the end of the program and decided to spend their remaining visa time exploring other possibilities. James and I, in essence, took a month off Maybe it was a little less than that. And yeah, kind of went our separate ways, I suppose. And then after that, you know, came back together and said, well, okay, well, what have you been thinking about for the last month? And if we were to embark on something else, what would it be? And we'd both written lists. That was kind of one of the deliverables of the month off of ideas we'd encountered that might be real problems. And ideally that we were interested in, in some way and what that way was. And I think we probably both had sort of 10 things. And um, on both our lists, we had encountered this problem when we were running the dev shop in, in that multiple companies had asked us to build for them essentially an automation engine or an automation suite to help them build, you know, put live and then maintain or edit the, the emails specifically that they were sending their customers in order to drive customer adoption of their products. And both of us had, you know, it wasn't well formulated in any way, but had written down that that was a problem we'd encountered. And that it seemed kind of weird because you had MailChimp, which was such a behemoth already at that time and seemed like a great product. Where did it run out of power such that these people were looking for more and willing to pay us what presumably in billable hours would have been several thousand dollars really to do this work. And then we started exploring it and found that there were companies like Responsus, Marketo, these sorts of companies, but they were very expensive. And so we wondered if maybe there's a gap in between those two that was starting to emerge and why was it starting to emerge? And so that's, that's really where it all began. And it was at this point that their Startmate experience started to kick in and the little voice inside their heads began to say, 
validate this with customers. See if there really is a gap in the market for a new messaging tool. It didn't take us long to get our first paying customer. It probably took us eight weeks or something legitimately. And obviously they were paying a tiny amount, but from there it just kind of snowballed in the sense of someone actually wants to pay for this. It's crazy because what we have is very minimal. The 10 people want to pay for it? And then they did. And so then it went from there and, and, and we kind of, you know, had taken what was that small amount of interest and grown the interest and then grown some real customers and then it kind of just grows organically in a way. As the business grew organically, so too did Chris and James's vision and aspirations for the company. You know, at that time, we certainly, you know, we wanted to build a successful company per se. We obviously love technology and love software. And then we'd found this problem and, you know, cared about helping businesses solve what was a technical challenge. For the first version of the product, the genuinely success to us looked like, well, if we could pay ourselves a not terrible salary and deliver a product that people really liked to use, which, you know, they're kind of linked, obviously, yeah, that would be super, super rewarding. And I honestly don't think we had a vision that was beyond email or, you know, we're going to you know, recreate the way people build software or anything like that. But then every stage you go through as you hit those milestones, you, well, certainly James and I have, uh, you know, always said, well, okay, what would 10x this look like? And, um, and how do we get there? You'll hear consistently from our founders that the best tool for product development is no product development at all. It's talking to your customers, or at least in Chris's case, potential customers. I think in hindsight, we could have done even less building, more talking to people, but certainly Startmate had taught us the hard way. The most important thing was finding people who cared about what you were doing. And that's what we had not found with the first thing, the first product that we had in Startmate. The very first thing we did was talk to as many people as we can. I think we had about 18, 19, 20 interviews with people that we had met through Startmate, but most importantly, that those people could introduce us to. So we didn't know them. So they were cold to us, which we felt was an important part of that validation process. And really we tried to paint a picture for them of what the first product would look like and the problem it would be solving. And, you know, we, we never got to the point of someone actually paying us money for something that didn't exist, but we got to the point with a lot of those people, like more than 50% saying, yeah, absolutely. If something does what you just said, we would definitely pay you a hundred bucks a month for it. So then we took the gamble of saying, well, okay, that seems fairly convincing. Let's actually do it. I don't think that most of those people paid us $100, but when we launched the product that we had built, a couple of them did. And then we put it up on Hacker News and we got a really good response to it. And so from that next wave of people who we truly didn't know, 10 people did pay for it. And so when we got to that point, and at this point, we're maybe 12, you know, 13, 14, 15 weeks from when we really started investigating this in earnest, at that point, we were like, okay, this legitimizes the problem you know, as we described it. And then we felt a lot more confident about investing a lot more in building the product out. And the product that people were so willing to pay Chris and James for was, in the simplest form, a messaging platform. I'll let Chris explain. What Vero is, is it's a messaging platform. And we work with other online technology-first companies to help them send great messages to their customers particularly over the last year and a half, we have a lot more of a mature understanding of what a good customer is for us. Uh, so most of our customers are either B2C, so consumer facing, or they're B2B businesses that operate within the same model. So, you know, B2C to B, if you want to call it that, self-serve, low touch. They, they may do higher touch stuff further down the funnel, but certainly that first run is very consumer-like. And the reason for that is there's kind of two sides to Vero. One is what I would call the broadcast side. And so that's helping teams more effectively uh, message their customers on 
an ad hoc basis or you know driven by external events if you will you know company announcements legal announcements product updates you know, those sorts of things where you're trying to tell all your customers about this stuff uh, and then the other side of Vero is this automation product that helps you know full stack teams put in place essentially you know small applications you know micro applications to message their customers in response to what those customers are doing and if you are a B2C company or you know a low touch B2B company you've got thousands or tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands or millions of end users and you can't possibly manually message all of those customers with the information they need and so that you know that's why that sort of customer gets so much value from Vero is that automation engine becomes so much more valuable and powerful to them and for them so for all of our customers it's about how do you get that customer to really you know adopt your product or adopt your brand and and interact with it multiple times you know definitely our best customers are not super transactional businesses where it's you know you buy one car um, you know every every 25 years or 20 years or 10 years you know those sorts of businesses would probably find it harder to get value out of Vero versus those where someone's coming back and logging in or checking the site out on a you know monthly weekly daily basis in the beginning chris and james wanted to self fund vero this self funding through savings or profits or grants is most commonly called bootstrapping atlassian is probably the most famous example of an initially bootstrapped company and in general australians are pretty good at building bootstrapped companies with strong underlying unit economics and chris and james thought that that was their path too i think that we were in a fairly lucky position when we started because we were really young in terms of being able to bootstrap something we were in a lucky position so we were super young neither of us had children we didn't have dependents and we had some of the money left over from startmate and we also had some money left over from the dev shop we were running that we rolled into vero as well and so we knew we had some runway it was probably about a year's runway by the time we got there we were making enough revenue to pay ourselves but then we decided to hire someone <laughs> and uh, pay them instead so definitely it was always like tenuous for sure particularly in the first 2 years it was something we wanted to do we wanted to try and bootstrap it and i think the main reason we wanted to do that which is still something i believe in today is it's kind of the ultimate validation that you know what you're building is working you know if you can find customers who will fund your company support your company i mean isn't that building a business like as simple as it can be you build something people give you money etc now as we became more mature as leaders of the company it's not always that simple obviously there are certain companies uh, like if you were starting you know a company researching vaccines or you know certain fintech companies you need the money to exist and to legitimize the company and the idea of the customer so there are certain businesses where you you really cannot bootstrap i think the other thing we learned is whether you want to bootstrap or not it's kind of neither here nor there in a way you need capital to run a business so more important is are you generating enough cash and obviously the model for a software as a service business a saas business does mean you're doing the development up front and and often getting paid for it you know well later depending on the exact unit economics of your business but even then you know i'm really glad we took the path we took because i think software and this is only more and more true since we founded vero it is cheaper and cheaper to build now that raises the bar for how are you going to build something defensible but it also does mean you can genuinely start a business with not very much capital if it's a pure software business which Vero really is i think you can get a long way without very much and i still think that you know that's the ultimate test in that pure software play of have you figured it out but there are also advantages to raising money 
that ultimately led Chris and James to make the call to take venture funding. And I asked Chris to explain what shifted in their thinking. I definitely think, you know, in hindsight, we should have bootstrapped for the first two years, but probably for the next two to three, we, we, I wish we'd raised earlier, is what I'm trying to say, in hindsight. Because, you know, we, we ended up getting to a point uh, where we, we had too much technical debt and that was leading to our service not doing everything it was advertised as doing for our customers. And obviously people get pissed off and then rightly so churn. And that's a terribly hard place to be in. And so that's an example of where having capital and having some backstop allowing you to invest ahead of the curve uh, is super, super valuable. But, you know, we had gotten to a point where we were having a bunch of success. It had mostly been driven by pure word of mouth. We'd done a lot of content marketing, but that was really myself and a wonderful guy called Jimmy Daly, uh, who's a legend, but we hadn't done much beyond that. And, and even, you know, on top of that, we didn't have a growth process. You know, we didn't have anyone doing product marketing. We didn't have anyone doing growth marketing, et cetera. And, you know, as we looked ahead, at the year or the two years in front of us, we said, well, okay, we're still growing and we're generating enough money that we'll be able to either focus on improving our product or we'll be able to stop doing that entirely and focus on the growth process. But really to get to the next wave of success, we think we need to do both. And that was probably the, the main thing that made us say, okay, we need money to invest ahead of the curve here. So we're, you know, we're doing service to our customers and to ourselves. And that's when we went to see if we could raise money and met you and here we are. When I asked Chris if he has any advice about finding investors, or what he had learned from the process, he says he was actually in a really lucky position at first. We had gone through Startmate. So first of all, we knew all these mentors who had either raised a lot of money themselves or invested a lot of money themselves or both. And then because we had bootstrapped for essentially five years, all of my friends and peers had raised far more money than me. So again, this great support network of people to say, okay, you know, how did you go about it? I think the first thing is a whole bunch of stuff that we definitely took for granted, given the position I just described, which is having investors who just understand the basic mechanics of successful investing. And so I'm talking stuff like, don't screw the founder out of so much equity that if they have to raise another one or two rounds, you know, they're not going to be motivated to carry on the path of building this thing they started building. So that, that's something that just seems so obvious, but um, you hear war stories and you're like, okay, it's not. We were just in the fortunate position where it had kind of been beaten into us that, that, that that's, the, that's a no-brainer. And I think, you know, fortunately, the, the market moves along and as the market, uh, the market kind of normalizes what's expected from an investor and what's expected from a company. It works both ways, right? But moving from a bootstrapped company to a venture-funded company did provide the room to invest in new areas while also proving some of Chris's biggest concerns to be unfounded. Certainly there are a few things that changed having raised, and then there were lots of things that didn't, which I think is really good. Uh, because we had bootstrapped for a long time, I think we did have a really strong culture, and it's not as though uh, you know, one of my maybe lightweight or mild fears was that we would raise and all of a sudden the dynamics would change, both within the team, but also now having these external stakeholders. Uh, and I, you know, I certainly took uh, and take raising money really seriously. I mean, you're you're taking money from someone or some group of people and saying you're going to help turn it into a bigger pool of money, basically. And uh, I you know, like to be good at things I'm doing. And, and so it's certainly something that, that uh, is, is no joke, in my opinion. But the first year after we raised, uh, yeah, we, we nearly doubled the team over that first year. And we were a super small team. So you know, I think when we raised, we were seven or eight people. Uh, so it's not like we were crazy big all of a sudden, but it's still, still a material change 
terms of percentage increase? In Chris's case, post-investment, they had two kind of bad, kind of unplanned things happen simultaneously. The first was surprise technical debt. And the second was the General Data Protection Regulation, or GDPR. This was the big unknown unknown that caused havoc for the Vero team that year. GDPR, if you've wiped it from your memory, is a regulation in EU law that governs the transfer of personal data. The goal is to give regular people like you or me greater control over our data. And when it came into effect in 2018, it required a big effort on behalf of all companies to ensure that they were in compliance. But for Vero, whose whole business was establishing complex and tailored messaging to millions of people, it was an implementation nightmare. We also ended up having a fairly tumultuous year, or at least a year and a half after we raised. Uh, you know, we, we ended up running into, as I said before, a lot of technical debt that I don't think we had seen coming, essentially. You know, we knew we had areas that we wanted to rebuild, but, um, you know, we really hit a wall. And that meant that, you know, certain things like trying to send a, a message, it would be massively delayed. And that was super demoralizing for all of us. And obviously had a real impact on our customers' businesses and therefore our business. So that was super hard. And basically we all had to muck out you know, and, and fire up and, and solve those problems, which you know, to our credit, we, we did over that year. You know, as well as that, there were you know, other things that were like GDPR that uh, were you know, outside forces that we had to work through as well. I think GDPR is a, you know, a, really, a really good thing, but for a business like ours was a lot of work. And on top of all that technical debt stuff we were doing, so there was a good year, year and a half there where we really didn't get to, it felt like, focus on the things that we had said we were going to focus on when we raised money and wanted to focus on. And, uh, and so, yeah, that was fairly demoralizing for everyone internally at Vero. Uh, but, you know, full credit to the team. Everyone you know, really pushed through that and banded together. I think nearly everyone uh, who was there then is here at Vero now. The team focused internally for nearly a year, redefining the product so that it was GDPR compliant and free of technical debt. And though it had been a quieter year of development than they'd planned, the lesson here is that when setbacks happen, as they're likely to, the task of a brilliant team is to rise to the occasion. And Vero did that, switching their focus back to growth goals right after. Number one there was building a proper growth engine. And I'd say that's what we've been up to for the last year, year and a half. And uh, for us, that was about building a, a process where we, you know, one, focused on the right things. And so an example of that is for most of our life, Vero, you know, has mostly looked at what I would call lag indicators. So, you know, revenue and things like that. So a big shift for us was starting to look at leading indicators, you know, which could be, you know, top of funnel, unique visitors to the site, the percentage of those going to the sign up page, the percentage of those, you know, converting and becoming free trials, the number of monthly active users, monthly active accounts. Those sorts of things are leading indicators where if those are going up consistently, well, the revenue will follow, assuming you know, you're finding customers that are fairly similar to the ones you have. And then on top of that, putting together a team is actually having the ability to execute on design, execute on content at a bigger scale, execute on SEO, uh, and then have someone who can bring all that together and really iterate over and over and over. And now we're doing that on a, a weekly basis you know, rather than a monthly basis where we, we are looking at all the key funnel metrics weekly. We try and run at least one, but often multiple experiments on a weekly basis and report on them the next week. And so it's slowly been a process of reorienting the company to 
I guess, go from this fairly defensive mode of getting through the fires that we had with the technical debt and GDPR and things like that. Uh, and again, you know, inspiring everyone that you can change things and think about all the things we can achieve and putting in place a process to slowly chip away at getting there. So yeah, it's been a really you know, exciting last year, year and a half. And, um, and it feels like we're, you know, the wheels are, wheels are turning and we're you know, back towards where we should have been. One of the most notable things about Vero as a company is that from their earliest hires, they structured their team to work beautifully while fully remote. And so while they had a tumultuous time in the lead up to COVID, they'd already put sophisticated processes in place to manage the most recent unknown unknowns. Yeah, we've been remote since I think our second hire, who was Jimmy, and uh, that would have been in 2013 or 2014. And I think at that time, we, we kind of fell into it because we were looking to hire someone who had experience writing content about great marketing or writing about how to do great messaging, great marketing, basically. And we just couldn't find any good candidates in Sydney. They may have been out there and we, we just couldn't get in front of them, but we didn't have anyone really apply. And so we ended up finding Jimmy and he was fantastic, uh, but he lived in the US, I think, Washington, DC at the time. And so we just thought, well, we'll give it a go. You know, if it works fine, it works fine. And we'll, we'll do our best to make sure it does. And it really did, which would be as much credit to Jimmy as to us. But that really got us on the path then to, to saying, okay, well, you, you can make this work if you run things correctly and you find people who want to make it work as well. And since then, it's probably always been about 50-50 or 60-40 in favor of remote. So 60% remote, 40% people in Australia or in Sydney. And at the time, I, you know, I, I think maybe, yeah, maybe all the way along, I don't think we've done a great job at shouting from the rooftops about the fact that this is reality here at Vero uh, or you know, all the positives that have come from it. But these positives don't just happen. As a lot of us are learning at the moment, working remotely can come with its own challenges. But Chris has developed some strategies to make it work. And I'd really encourage you to take note of these because it's gold. One of the things that I really like is, and I'm not saying we're always uh, doing these things 100%, but in order to work remotely, you have to work asynchronously. It's not an option, particularly if you have team members on different time zones. And in order to work asynchronously, you have to have good process, particularly in the sense that people need to know, one, like how what they're doing fits into the bigger picture. And two, they need to have autonomy to actually execute on whatever it is that they're doing. And so there's this idea of defaulting to action and how do you give people the information so they make good decisions and keep moving the company forward, even if you're asleep. And I think that whether you're remote or not, this idea of working asynchronously requiring good process, you know, this idea of defaulting to action requiring good information sharing and transparency, those are great ideas, whether you're remote or not. And they don't just happen magically when you're all in an office it's not like, oh, because we're all sitting down at lunch together, we've got great process and everyone knows what they're doing and all of a sudden we're going to do it really effectively. That doesn't happen anyway. So it's not a logical conclusion that being in an office would be better for those things. And we have found that remote has forced us at a small company size and at relatively early stage throughout to really think about those things because otherwise nothing would get done. And yeah, I think that these days, we, I'd like to think we do a really good job of that and, and hopefully everyone at Team Bureau agrees. And for those of us just delving into remote workspaces this year, there are some important notes that Chris has learned over his time at Vero. There are some things that are easier to do, I think, in person. So product design work, for example, you know, creative brainstorming session on 
you know, marketing campaigns, that sort of stuff. And so to do them well remotely, you have to spend a lot of time planning. It's kind of like, you know, measure twice, cut once sort of thing. So I think that's something you have to do well as well. For those things that aren't naturally online, really spend time on the agenda, get people to do homework, be explicit about what the homework is, like read this thing. And you might have to write the thing that they need to read. So that takes time as well. I think just getting together on Zoom and winging it can be really hard for that high bandwidth stuff. So putting time in planning would be my tip. Planning is one, but communication is a second. And I think this is what he thinks they've really gotten right at Vero. So things that we do that I think are really good, and they're not necessarily rocket science, every team at Vero, so we sort of have three main teams, you know, customer support success would be one, um, product and engineering would be two, uh, and growth would be three. They're sort of the big three teams. All those teams run in the same way, and that's very much inspired by the software engineering lifecycle. Uh, so, you know, weekly sprint meetings, you know, those teams are getting together as individual teams, going through, you know, kind of a retrospective on the prior week and mostly looking ahead at what's going to happen this week. So that brings a structure. We, you know, we use Asana, but you could use any, you know, appropriate tool. We record the sprint that's happening in that tool, and we can then tie that back to sort of broader views of, of the work that's happening for a quarter, that sort of thing. There needs to be consistent contact between you know, every team member and at least one other person, but ideally a couple of other people. And in our case, that's those sub teams. You know, they're obviously catching up at least once a week and often multiple times a week within those teams. It gets harder as a CEO to catch up with everyone every week, obviously. So that, that's what's worked for us. Someone joined the team not too long ago and in their prior role, they said they spoke to someone, I think once every six weeks or something like that. And so the rest of the time they were just off doing work on their own. That seems insane to me for that per- if everyone's happiness and also productivity. One of the harder learning curves that our founders climb is learning where the perfect distance is between being detail and perspective oriented. Some of our earlier episodes, we've heard founders talk about learning when and where to jump in and where to let their team drive decisions. And Chris has been on this journey too. You know, if you see something maybe not going the way that you think it should go, don't like jump in and take over and start doing it. Instead, ask the question of next time, how do I make sure it doesn't happen that way? Because answering that question is how you empower others with information, with the attitudes or the philosophies to make the right decision. And so it might mean that in the moment, that one particular thing you know, didn't quite go as you would have done it, but that's fine because you've learned something from it and you've hopefully put in place something so that next time it doesn't. I think that sort of thinking is something I've had to, had to really learn to do. And I think if you're not doing that, you're also being a, a crap leader. So hopefully I'm doing better at it. And that's good for everyone on the team at Vero. And only in the last year and a half, having the time to think about it, setting a really good company vision or product vision is more about like really understanding the problems that customers are having and defining like what a solution, you know, might look like or how you would describe a solution. Then there's the layer below that, which is like, what does that solution look like in practice? And they're both important. But I think in the past, spend a lot more time focusing on it. What does this product actually look like? You know, and I don't mean you know, look like in terms of just clicking around a screen, but what are the features and why does that solve a problem uniquely from this? And less time thinking about, well, what's the big hairy problems and how are those problems evolving in the world? And then how are the solutions to those problems evolving and what creative ideas do you have for new solutions that others don't have? And that stuff takes a lot of time. And that, that's something that I spend a lot more time thinking about now. Chris says he's also spent a lot of time thinking about the questions that he may not have had the answers to, but that by asking, 
can make his company better. I think I'm of the, well, I'm obviously of the view because what I'm doing is that you can iterate towards success. Like it's not, you don't just have to throw the whole thing out and put it in the bin and like start again. That feels a bit too lottery for me. And instead you, uh, in our case, I think, you know, we're just, we're we're hopefully getting better and better at understanding what it means to have a, a good strategy, to have a strategy at all for that matter. And then when you have that, hopefully you can execute on it and, and that's where success comes in. And so every time you start something new, you're having to define a whole new strategy per se. And I think that's really what we've been up to the last year is you're reviewing you're in a much deeper sense. Well, what, what is our strategy as a business? And, and even asking questions like, you know, imagine that we hit it out of the park and Vero, the product we have today is a hundred million dollar a year product. Well, well, what then, you know, and, and it's kind of, it's very esoteric question in a way, but what I mean by that is, can someone build another Salesforce, a sort of like 20 product conglomerate or another Atlassian? Can that happen again? Or are those companies just going to continue to dominate? I don't think we, we certainly never asked those seven years ago and uh, we asked them now and obviously we don't have all the answers, but I think, um, yeah, ho- hopefully by asking those questions, we can work on finding a good answer. One of the values Chris talked about learning from his parents at the start of this podcast was humility. And I think this shines through in his entire attitude of learning from his mistakes and being able to push through difficult challenges. You know, I'm a big believer in, and I'm going to forget the quote, but in essence, you know, don't shout from the rooftops, you know, let the success do the talking for itself sort of thing. And I think, you know, we haven't achieved everything, uh, certainly that we wanted to when we raised the round with SquarePeg and, uh, and that, you know, I know as a team, we all believe we can and will achieve, you know, over time. And so I think, yeah, I'm just, uh, you know, always hesitant to, you know, I think you can learn a lot from failure, but you can also learn a lot from success and we're still learning a lot. It's always hesitant to whatever the right word is, but you know, educate others when we haven't figured it all out. I think we're, we're all super yeah, inspired and yeah, feel that sense again, that, that we're in control, but that like you can affect change rather than, you know, change affecting you. That's it for our conversation with Chris from Vero. To learn more about their beautiful and powerful messaging platform, head to getvero.com. Thanks to Chris for spending time with us, you for staying with me to the end, and Romy, our wonderful podcast producer, for making these stories sing. We're taking a week off next week, so we'll catch you the week after. Have a great one.